The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Building Banking on Values with your host, Linda Ryan. Banking today can depend on a variety of factors, including where you bank. It's time to put the power back into your pockets. It's time to change what you think you know about banking. Now, here is Linda Ryan. Welcome to the Building Banking on Values show. Folks, this is our third show, and we've had two great episodes prior to this show. We have looked at uh, Can Serious Banking Have a Seriously Social Conscience? And on that show, we had Marcus Egegeren, Executive Director of the Global Alliance for Banking on Values. And Marcus uh, represents an alliance of 28 values-based banks from across the world who commit to using finance to create only economic, social, and environmental change in positive ways. Um, We also have had uh, David Cordland on. And David Cordland is a strategic advisor, and he has been providing advice to banking um, over the last 20 years. He hails from Shore Bank in Chicago, and he's worked with ABN AMRO. David's on the show weekly, and he will be on in the next two or three minutes to give us a news roundup. Um, Our second show was uh, all about can uh, banking be feminine, which sounds like an interesting concept, but it's about banking being, um, I guess, motherly towards the economy, uh, the environment and society. And we had two great guests on the show. We had Dr. Katrin Kaufer, who was from MIT in the Presencing Institute. And Katrin was actually talking and giving us an exclusive on the launch of the world's first massive open online course with MIT on that very same topic of values-based banking. It's called Just Money, Banking as if Society Mattered. We then had Linda Van Goor on, um, who is a regulatory expert and a bit of a white knight in terms of lobbying um, EU regulators to bring the voice of values-based banks in Europe closer to the regulation table so that we can create better impact. And that brings me to this show. On this show, we are looking at can research influence strategy and organizational change in banking. And on the show, I will welcome uh, Brendan Reimer from Assiniboine Credit Union in Canada and Dr. Kenneth Ameshi from University of Edinburgh. But before I get to uh, Brendan and Kenneth, let me introduce you to David Korsland. David, welcome to the show. Hello, Linda. How are you? Again, good to talk to you this week. Yeah, it's great to chat with you this week. So um, what's going on, David, in terms of the world of banking and news, and can you translate it for us? Yeah, um, it's always every week there's lots of news about banking, so it's always hard to pick out what to talk about. And so today I've got a couple of articles to sort of update on what's happening currently, but also uh, an article that, uh, or actually a combination of an article and a study that takes a little more into depth. I think the, the big news today is that uh, five U.S. banks had their living wills um, 
turned down. Uh, as you, you may recall, or some of the listeners may recall, the, the largest banks in the world have been asked by various regulators to uh, develop what are called living wills. I'm not sure if living is really the right word there to help figure out how the banks can die and do so without uh, significantly harming either the economy or the, uh, the uh, uh, depository guarantee systems in their country. And what was interesting is that five banks in the U.S. today, uh, or yesterday, I received news that their uh, plans for how they could orderly dissolve themselves were rejected. Uh, two other banks had sort of a split decision. This is a decision that has to be taken by all the regulators. So two others, uh, interestingly, uh, had two different regulators say no. So they were approved by one regulator, turned down by the other regulator. But it, it I think, reflects the fact that the, the, the large banks are extremely complex. And in a period of financial stress, how you would resolve uh, a problem of a large bank not able to continue is quite complex. And the regulators are saying, you haven't done quite enough to make plans for that. Please go back and do a little bit more homework. Uh, David, just before you go on, is this a new thing that regulators are asking for living wills? And, you know, is there something kind of um, spurring it on? Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, part of the uh, Dodd-Frank reforms in the U.S., and so it's particularly in the U.S., and it's basically a post-financial crisis where it was discovered that Lehman Brothers, in you know, being resolved, became quite complex. Um, so what I'd like to just note is that it, it's really a post-crisis and trying to avoid some of the, the challenges of that crisis where, where Lehman Brothers with operations in multiple countries under multiple legal systems uh, was seen as quite complex to resolve. And so it's really a post-crisis resolution, and that's what, what's driving it. Um, and it's taken a long time. It was easy to forget that 2008 was the crisis. That's uh, nearly uh, eight years ago, seven and a half years ago. And only now are we getting some of these reforms onto the table. And then we discovered that even when they're done, they're not done well enough, and the regulators have asked the banks to go back and do, do more. Oh, Okay. And, what, and what, what else is going on? Excuse me? Well, what makes that interesting is there was a very fascinating com- uh, article by John Kay. John Kay is a writer for the Financial Times. I highly recommend uh, uh, following, following John Kay because he's, he's quite, quite a good writer. And he talks about the fact that complexity, not size, is the real danger in banking. That's, that's the title of his, his piece. And I think it's an excellent piece for us to think about as we think about the stability of the financial system and how it supports the real economy. And, and he focuses on the issue of complexity, not size, and he does that uh, a bit within the context of, of also having commentary on the U.S. Uh, political uh, situation where there's a lot of focus on big banks, particularly uh, both in the Republican primary and in the Democratic primaries. And I think uh, John Kay makes a very good point. Size is not in and of itself the problem, but complexity is. Uh, however, I think if you look at the largest banks in the U.S. or in the world, they have both the problem of size and complexity. And I think that relates back to the, the first article I was commenting on, which is the banks failing in the U.S. The living will test. So I think, uh, it, I think this gets at a very core issue, which is large, complex financial institutions do create some real risks and challenges in the economy that we're, we're thinking about. So, so I sort of tie those two together and encourage uh, people to try to, to look into both of those. 
diagnose and try to understand it if they want to understand why why there's still some worry about what could happen if the financial system goes through another crisis. And David, you, you mentioned the challenge could be both size and complexity. Um, is do you, from your experience, do you see a difference in, between values-based banks when we talk about those two elements and what, well, the more conventional type of banks or traditional banks that we would be used to? Yeah, I think the biggest difference is values-based banks tend to be smaller, tend to be more geographically isolated. That has positives and negatives. It, it means that they're much less complex because they operate in one location. It does mean that if that geography goes through a, a challenging economic time, they can face, they can face some, some survival issues uh, because if you're in a bad economy, it's just tough for a bank. But they don't tend to have the complexity of operations and the complexity of geographies. And I think that makes a, a good difference. And, and if, if you would allow me, I would actually use that to, to segue into to the other sort of in the news, though it's a bit old but not so old, uh, which is some really interesting research by the, um, the Federal Reserve of New York on banking deserts. As you recall, I talked a bit about banking deserts last week, but yeah. the, they published a study in March, uh, which is actually not long ago, and it was subsequently picked up by a article uh, in a rather long article uh, in the Atlantic Monthly about why um, physical um, uh, uh, deserts have, have an impact. Uh, and and the the banking desert issue is quite interesting. And they, and what the research of the Fed, Federal Reserve of New York did is they noted that there were 5,000 branches closed since the beginning of the crisis. So a crisis which started because of complex financial institutions located, located money centers around the world, primarily London and New York, has led to 5,000 branches being closed, and especially in low-income and minority neighborhoods. And these are now becoming banking deserts. So it's, it's a bit of a pity that these innocent people who had nothing to do with the crisis to begin with uh, are losing their banking services um, because of, of choices being made by the large banks. And a lot of people focus on what, the, what does that do for, for individuals. But what's really quite interesting is it leads to a significant decline in bank credit for small businesses. And small businesses both provide services to those communities, but also jobs. And so here you, again, have a situation where, in reaction to a financial crisis, big banks are attempting to, to save costs, creating banking deserts, which is negative for the creation of jobs in communities that especially need it. And I think that's a, that's a quite interesting consequence. And, and what's interesting about the research, uh, it's, it's, uh, you can find it at the Liberty Street Economics, which is a blog of the New York uh, Federal Reserve, and the title is Banking Deserts, Banks Closings, and Soft Information. It also references a series of other really good studies about the importance of, uh, of banks, primarily for the, for the small business lending. Um, and, and the reason I, I say that is I, I was thinking it's also good to talk about how you get around banking deserts. And one way you get around it is the work done by Southern Bank Corp., a member of the Global Alliance for Banking and Values, 
who has found ways by being smart with their use of technology to keep branches open in locations where other banks are exiting. And that's, that's how they're uh, creating those oases uh, in banking deserts to be. And we can also look at the, the, uh, the good work done in other parts of the world. Uh, if you look at uh, Bcash, which is a project of Frack Bank in Bangladesh, or in PESA, which is a uh, activity in Kenya, what you're finding is that through use of mobile technology, there are new ways in which you can provide banking services, including lending increasingly, <laughs> in what otherwise would be banking deserts. So I, I take that uh, to, to, to sort of try to put a series of thoughts together. One, banking deserts are a real concern, and we should really be thinking about banks are critical for, for communities. But uh, they're being increased by the problems of the largest banks, but we've got small banks, values-based banks out there who are finding solutions to, solutions to that. And I think that's a, an interesting juxtaposition of information. That's fantastic, David. Thanks for that. So um, take me back to your own experience, like the types of organizations you're working with now. Is this coming up in the work that you're doing or are you looking at other challenges? Um, I'm looking at all kinds of challenges. Uh, We're looking at ways... uh, to, to assess what's happening with, uh, uh, with banks and, and really provide a scorecard. That's a project we're working on with the Global Alliance member banks, but also other banks. And that will hopefully get at providing concrete ways in which banks uh, with a values-based focus can show what they're doing to ensure that communities get societal value for the banks that, that uh, make money off of them. And it's not just enough to make money for the shareholders, but the banks also should be delivering societal value in return for the support they get from uh, communities and governments, frankly, to to provide deposit guarantee programs and so on. And and I, I think we really need to focus on how do we get banks delivering societal values such as economic resiliency for the communities and people with whom they work, environmental regeneration to ensure that the environment is not degraded but actually is left better than it is now, and also uh, social empowerment to ensure that people have education, health care, and all those other things that make life better. Wonderful. Actually, you know what? It reminds me, I just spotted, I think it was a tweet or a Facebook message this week under the hashtag Banking on Values, and it was Triodos Bank in Europe. Um, Peter Blom, the CEO, was uh, talking about the launch of their annual report. And obviously, I didn't read the whole report. I have a bit of a life, but I did read some of the summary. And I just thought it was so interesting. I mean, there was no focus on, on... the, the usual things, like there was no focus on the words like profit or shareholder. And um, what the report summarized was the impact that the bank was creating or, or supporting and facilitating through the type of services they provide provided, and they could quantify it. So I thought it was just such an interesting way of of turning things around. You know, it, it really seemed like what they were trying to do was, rep- I guess, be accountable for the money that they were handling and show the impact that it was creating in their areas of, of interest, you know, in terms of local businesses, um, environmental initiatives, cultural initiatives. I just thought it was kind of something to celebrate, really. 
it's quite yeah, and, and Linda, on that front, there's a lot of initiatives underway. The, the Social Performance Task Force is quite busy finding ways to develop metrics, among other, other entities, and the Global Alliance is also looking at it with its member banks. But the Social mm-hmm. Performance Task Force is looking for ways in which it can provide concrete data that is not necessarily financial, but shows what are the, re- the results delivered for society, not just for apparent shareholder returns. Now that's wonderful. David, listen, thanks so much. It's been great having you on the show. Uh, folks, let's take a break. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Do you find yourself working tirelessly to keep your business going? Are you finding out that you don't have time for family, friends, any kind of personal life whatsoever? It's time to stop feeling trapped by your business. Tune in to Reclaim Your Freedom with host Shirley Dalton. You'll hear from guests that will help you work on your business instead of constantly in your business and get your life back while the business keeps running and humming. Reclaim Your Freedom airs live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. U.S. Pacific Time on Voice America Business. If you're interested in gaining strategies to be more successful both at work and your personal life, check out Turn the Page with host Hemda Mizrahi. It's all about building new habits and perspectives. The show helps you identify the changes you need to make that align with your values and priorities. And then apply these principles to your career, health, social life, and other areas. These are proven techniques that work. Turn the Page airs live Fridays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Business. If you are a small business owner or entrepreneur, you may not be aware of the different options available to you in securing business capital in today's market. We discuss and explore these options each week on Small Business Capital America with host Michael Schumacher. There are two primary ways of building business capital. Profits, which are basically higher revenue and reduced expenses, and external or debt capital. Listen live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Business. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. are tuned into Building Banking on Values. To reach Linda Ryan or her guests, please send an email to lynda.ryan at gabv.org. That's lynda.ryan at gabv.org. You may also join the social media conversation by using hashtag banking on values or tweet show host Linda Ryan at Catalyst Warrior. Now back to Building Banking on Values. Folks, welcome back to the Building Banking on Value show. Um, our guest on the show now is Brendan Reimer, who's strategic partner of values-based banking at Assiniboine Credit Union. Um, Brendan has had a, a pretty strong career. He's a former Manitoba Regional Director at the Canadian CED Network, member of the Social Enterprise Council of Canada, former board member of Light, and even a former board member of Assiniboine's 
board of directors, which is an interesting change. So Brendan has moved from being on the board of directors to being in the business, so working on the business to working in the business. Brendan describes himself as a passionate educator and organizer, and he's dedicated to creating inclusive, fairer, and more sustainable economies and communities. Brendan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Great to be with you. Brendan, tell us a bit more about Assiniboine Credit Union and and why you're a different type of of bank. <clears throat> well, I guess the story starts in the origins of the credit union. Like many credit unions, at least in Canada, they were created by a really small group of people who were trying to address a market gap. And so Assiniboine's story starts back in 1943 with a group of people who felt like the banks were not putting people first and creating opportunities for the average working person to access credit. And so they started a small financial cooperative. And uh, today, we, we've grown and have uh, yeah, about 500 employees and 113,000 members at 21 branches. Um, and we serve businesses and individuals and all of that. But we are still at the heart. The cooperative that was founded way back when that exists here to serve our members and improve the communities that they live in. So, Brandon, it, it sounds like um, it sounds like a bit of a challenge, you know, to to be growing, but to still stay connected to the people and the communities that you serve. How do you do that? Well, there's there's a few different angles to that. One, in terms of the the roots and the core of any kind of organization that is started for mission or purpose, as the decades roll on, as the as the generations change, as people turn over, it isn't uncommon in any type of organization for the people, you know, decades later to not necessarily remember the purpose and the passion uh, uh, of the original founders. And so I think with any organization being dedicated to having programs that continually orient new employees and existing employees as to why it is we exist, what is the purpose that we are pursuing, what is the impact in the world we're trying to have, that cannot be taken for granted, and I think any organization needs to continue focusing on that. But the other side of it, I would say, is that there are opportunities for growth in being different, in being focused on the triple bottom line. And so uh, there are both opportunities, but also things to remember about retaining that culture. And tell me a bit more about your own story. I mean, did you, when you were small, did you think you were going to be a rocket scientist or you said, no, I want to be a banker? (laughs) Well, the the Global Alliance for Banking on Values video has a wonderful and passionate kid who who understands that he is already a banker. But no, that was not my story. Um, (laughs) I I grew up in in South America with parents who were involved in community work. uh, And then I grew up in rural Manitoba doing all kinds of different things. And so yeah, I, I ran a small business at one point. I worked in construction at one point. But where I really landed was that I wanted to spend my working days doing something that really mattered to people in the communities around me, especially those who were facing different kinds of challenges. And I'll never forget someone who said something. He, he said this to a lot of graduating classes. He said, you know, it doesn't really matter what you end up doing for a career. If you want to find purpose, Get involved in something that you cannot accomplish by yourself and get involved in something that cannot be achieved in your own lifetime. In that work, you will find purpose. And so whether I've been working in the nonprofit field or social enterprise field or in the banking field, for me, it's always been about that mission. And where I happen to be is a vehicle to achieve that. 
Fantastic. And and from what I saw from your profile, you did move from a board position at Assiniboine to, I guess, more of a hands-on position. What led you to that decision? <clears throat> um, well, it wasn't just so much one change to the other, um, but uh, it, 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 it was an opportunity that, that I did see. And I'd been working in the field of community economic development for the last 11 years, and Assiniboine Credit Union had always been one of the very active members in that work. And so I was very familiar with the credit union. And already, uh, you know, more than 10 years ago, I had moved all of my business because I came from rural Manitoba. I had moved all of my business to Assiniboine Credit Union already before that because for me as an individual, I wanted to know that the place where my money was active and the place that I maybe paid interest to or fees to would do something very impactful with that money, and I knew Assiniboine Credit Union would do that. So I'd been involved with Assiniboine for a very long time in different ways and different roles, and when this opportunity came up to help continue shaping that vision and that purpose, um, I, I was very inspired by the opportunity and, and uh, was honored that they, they chose me to help, uh, help advance that. Wonderful. Um, tell me about your uh, values-based banking policy and action framework. It sounds quite interesting. Yeah, it was. Um, it was the it was the board of directors who at one point asked the question, and I should clarify: Cinnamon Credit Union has been kind of had a renewed focus in the early nineties on social impact and really took a strong focus on going back to those roots, those original values, the original purpose, and trying to think how do we do that in the modern era, and, and, and started to do a lot of really innovative, interesting things in the community. But there wasn't a policy that said, this is who we are and this is what we're going to do. So to my knowledge, Assiniboine Credit Union is one of the few organization businesses organizations and uh, <clears throat> certainly in the financial services world that has this kind of overarching policy that clarifies that this is our purpose that we are a financial services institution that is our vehicle that is our industry but this is our purpose behind that wow okay so it's pretty different i mean definitely about putting people before profit yeah, and it's so. Like I said, it's the, the initiatives and the actions were all were happening before the policy, um, but it, it was seen, it was believed that putting it in policy would embed it, would institutionalize it, and especially referring back to what I mentioned before about the challenge of retaining the passion and vision in the culture of the entire organization as people change. One of the things that will help is if it's embedded in the policies of the organization. And it's interesting. Um, I know you have some some updates on, um, about opening branches in areas where other banks have abandoned, and it's interesting. Uh, I'd like you to tell us a bit about that, but let me bring you back to what David was talking about too, the banking desert. So. Can you talk to us about your um, North End branch? Is it in, in Winnipeg? Yes, yes. Our, our, most of our branches are here in Winnipeg. We do have two branches up in northern Manitoba. But, uh, and this in some ways uh, has been a story I've been involved with, with many years. As a student, I, I was uh, selected to do some research uh, in the North End of Winnipeg, a, a lower income neighborhood, on the exodus of financial institutions and the influx of the fringe banks 
who who came in behind it to fill that void, but of course charge very exploitive uh, fees and interest rates for things like cashing checks and small dollar credit, right? So the, back then already, in doing the research as a student, I remember that a Cinnamon Credit Union was invited to be part of the solution and, and, and explored different kinds of models over the years. And it was known that a Cinnamon Credit Union was the only financial institution that would ever rethink or, or, or consider going against the tide, if you will, and filling a gap like that. Um, so there were different programs that were established, and a couple of years ago, uh, Assiniboine uh, opened a branch in the North End, a full-service branch in the North End, where all the other banks had abandoned it. <clears throat> and what's been incredibly interesting is to watch the growth that has happened in a few different ways. The number of new members, I believe it's a 1,000 new members in the last few years, uh, the business that has come in. But as a student who looked at the transactions that people were making because they maybe had barriers to transportation or different things like that, that were so exploitive at the fringe banks, to see uh, over a number, the first few years a few hundred thousand transactions made at that branch, I can't help but believe that quite a number of those would have been made at these fringe financial outlets. And now they're being made at the Assiniboine branch where as a full member, they are getting fair treatment and, and, and fair service. So, I, I mean, it, it couldn't have happened without partnerships in the communities either. The, the branch had to be viable. And part of building the business case was going to the community and asking uh, and, and saying, if this is something that is really needed in this community, would you partner with us and, and bringing business to that branch to help make it viable. And the response from the community was incredible. I believe the target was set at about $6 million to start, and more than three times of that came in because the organizations in the community were so excited about this opportunity that they literally put their money into it to help make it happen to create a solution for their neighborhood. Wow. And do you have any more examples of, of how Assiniboine contributes to this concept of values-based banking or how you're, you're quite different to the more traditional type of banking? Well, you know, even in opening up the branch in the North End, <clears throat> one of the barriers to banking that people have in our communities is that they may not have ID. They may not have the right ID. They may not be able to afford to acquire ID. So we've worked with a whole range of community partners where we will accept a character letter for an individual as a piece of ID. And, and we have another community partner who will provide the other piece of ID for them and help them acquire it. So we are able to bank the unbanked in the neighborhood beyond just having a branch there. And last year was nearly 800 people who were previously unbanked or underbanked who now are full members of the credit union. And we do that every year. Um, <clears throat> understanding that nonprofits and cooperatives and social enterprises, affordable housing groups are having some of the greatest impact in our communities that we want to see. We know we're not going to build housing ourselves, but we can, we've created a community financial center that has a specialized group of people who know how to support those groups with financing. So we will do our part. We will use our skills and abilities to empower them to be able to have the impact they want to have. Um, of course, our impact on the environment is really important. So we have targets built for the organization to reduce our greenhouse gas footprint emissions and, and carbon footprint every year. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the interesting ones that came up here in, in Canada, we have far too many professionals from other countries who are experienced and they are qualified, but they're 
qualifications are not necessarily recognized here in Canada. And so you have very skilled, very educated people working at minimum wage jobs, uh, and which is just a shame. And so we worked with another community partner, Seed Winnipeg, a local nonprofit, to provide loans for these folks, uh, small loans, to en- enable them to go get their credentials recognized through a training program. And we, we set up the terms and conditions very flexibly. There, there's not a Canadian credit history that's required. There's, uh, there's not proof of, of, of employment required. Many of them quit their job to go to school, for example. <clears throat> and, and, and then we provide them with a loan to, for anything, for whether they need to, you know, the cost of living or the fees or the, the exams or whatever they might need the money for. And we've provided just over 160 loans like this already in the last two years, and already 80 people are now in their field of choice or something related. And just a short study on the first cohort that went through, the average income increase per person was about $40,000 per person. And wow. so we can use our tools. We are a financial services organization, so we can use finance for good. And the skills are all theirs. The determination is all theirs. The educational institutions take care of the training, but they have no way to access that training without this bridge of financing. And so we're able to use our capacity in a small way to help build that bridge and people's lives are changed for their families and and for ever really they're now in the field of their passion and their choice. Uh, So that's, that's another one that I'm really excited about for sure. So two more questions to ask you in the last two minutes. So um, tell me about, do you have any new areas of impact that uh, Assiniboine would like to make a difference in? Well, I think one area that's really interesting is is how, how the pace of technological change in the financial services industry is really fast. The industry is changing a lot and really quickly. And I think it would be really interesting to find ways, and I think David even alluded to this in a previous segment, to find ways to use technology, the emerging technology, to enhance the ability to bring people into uh, the credit union, to, to, to bank the unbanked, to even use it as a tool of financial empowerment and financial literacy. So I think that's a really interesting thing to explore uh, going forward. And um, I know in Canada, we still have this question, and it may be around the world, of how to provide alternatives to payday lenders. And it's so, again, personally, for someone who researched this as a student years ago, I would love to see for, for in the Canadian market for us to figure out a way to provide small dollar credit uh, for people who really need that type of service. Fantastic. And um, Brendan, um, just quickly, if people want to find out more information about Assiniboine or your latest annual report, where do they go online? Um, well, there's one place would be uh, gabv.org, so the Global Alliance for Banking on Values. There's a profile on Assiniboine Credit Union there and some information. The Assiniboine Credit Union website is assiniboine.mb.ca, and we just posted our latest annual report, so there's all kinds of information and statistics uh, about the different initiatives that we do. Uh, and, of course, we've got uh, social media, so Twitter and, uh, and Facebook, and, uh, and we update kind of the things that we're doing on there on a regular basis, and people can gladly follow us there as well. 
fantastic. Brendan, it's been an absolute honour. Thanks very much for sharing the Assiniboine story. Hopefully it's inspired both our listeners um, to start asking some questions of their own financial institutions. And if we have any bankers listening, hopefully it's inspired them to think that there is profit and positive impact in this way of banking. Brendan, thanks very much. Folks, let's go to a commercial break. the boardroom to you voice america business network game-changing technologies and strategies are transformational exciting and disruptive for a reason they shake up your status quo they get you thinking about new ways to scale compete and grow they move you in amazing new directions you're invited to take your coffee break with Game Changers on Tuesdays, 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time for our special series on the future of the future. Learn how you can become the savvy leader who takes your company across the finish line as you look ahead to the next wave of business innovation. The future of the future with Game Changers presented by SAP on the Business Channel. What if every day was a good day for business? because every decision you made was the best choice. What if you could receive regular input from credible sources and could acquire all the precise information you need exactly when you need it so you can make the right decision every single time? Because There's More challenges you to make better decisions. Join Laura Ellis every Monday at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific, and 2 p.m. GMT on the Voice America Business Channel and learn how to think differently for better decisions, better business. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into Building Banking on Values. To reach Linda Ryan or her guests, please send an email to lynda.ryan at gabv.org. That's lynda.ryan at gabv.org. You may also join the social media conversation by using hashtag banking on values or tweet show host Linda Ryan at Catalyst Warrior. Now back to Building Banking on Values. Folks, welcome back to the Building and Banking on Value show. Our next guest guest is Kenneth Ameshi, Head of Strategy Group and Reader in Strategy and International Business at the University of Edinburgh. Uh, Kenneth is Director of Sustainable Business Initiative. Um, He has had positions at University of Warwick, um, International Centre for Corporate Social Responsibility, University of Oxford. So besides teaching and researching, Kenneth also works with businesses, non-government organizations, and governments, and he currently leads a university platform on corporate social responsibility and governance. So lots of very good things there. Kenneth, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. 
Kenneth, can you tell me about your current position and what it involves in terms of, I guess, building um, a more sustainable world through business? Yes, I currently lead the Sustainable Business Initiative uh, at the University of Edinburgh. And the primary purpose of the initiative is um, to drive research in this area. So basically looking at how the private sector can contribute to the sustainable development goals broadly articulated. Uh, we also engage in um, teaching as well as uh, executive uh, uh, education and also engagement with industry, and that's my link with the Global Alliance for Banking on Values, because most of the things they do and the organization they represent will fit into the kind of uh, business models we would like to understand mm-hmm. and also uh, disseminate what they do. So we, we'll come back to the GABV in a minute, but tell me a little bit more about, I guess, the demand. Is there a growing demand from an educational perspective in, in this values-based approach to business or banking? You know, is, is the demand coming from students themselves or is, is it coming from somewhere else? Um, the students are interested in, in, the, in the whole idea around corporate social responsibility. So we see that coming through, especially with the younger students. Um, Yes, I would say there is a demand for that. Um, but when you go beyond them, then there is a, a there is a bit of a challenge because most people, in uh, when they go back to the uh, usual conventional world of work, the pressures are different, and in that sense, they, they sometimes may want to rethink about this whole idea about corporate social responsibility or sustainability. But the, it's, it's a growing, um, I would say, movement. And the interest is also growing in, in that regard. But what we're seeing um, is the idea that students now are beginning to ask questions about corporate responsibility when they want to, when they go for job interviews and, and the likes. And that way also companies are beginning to respond. And, and there are also some other interests like uh, consumers who are aware and pushing companies. So the, the interest is growing. And are you approached by businesses as well to do consultancy, you know, a business or a bank that wants to become more corporately, you know, socially responsible? Yes, from time to time. I mean, the question is, um, sometimes when people talk about sustainability or corporate responsibility, it, it can be very fluffy as a kind of an idea, a nice idea to have. But you see organizations who are interested, and then they come back and say, well, how do we do this, and how do we translate it into practice? Um, I've done a, a couple of um, projects looking at how that could be translated from theory to practice, from idea to practice, and what it can what um, it can mean for organizations from a very um, practical perspective. Yes, they, they come to us to ask for such advice. I'm sure there's always probably an interesting uh, introductory question around, well, this all sounds really nice and fluffy, but uh, is there profit in it? I mean, how do you, how do you answer that question? <laughs> That's usually the question, isn't it? Because people, um, some organizations want to engage, it, engage with it from a, what I may call, instrumental strategic perspective. Instrumental in the sense that we do it because it makes money. Okay. So uh, some people also argue that that's the business case. Um, but that's true to a large extent, but it can also be quite um, challenging um, because what it probably suggests is that if it doesn't make money, we wouldn't do it. Okay. 
Um, so I try to differentiate between two two types of businesses. One is a business that is interested in it because of they say the profit or the, the money makes because of the business case, but there are also businesses that are interested in it because um, they see it as a proper way of doing business. So it's good business, and within it, they think about how that can translate to organizational um, sustenance or profitability one way or the other. So on one hand, CSR or sustainability thinking becomes an add-on on the other hand, where it's seen as a good way of doing business, it's quite embedded and it becomes the lens through which organizational actors appraise their business uh, options. And tell me a bit more about your work supporting the, the banking sector and more specifically, I guess, ethical or sustainability focused banks. What type of work are you doing there? Um, I've currently done um, some work with uh, some microfinance banks um, in, in Africa, looking at how to translate some of these ideas into practice. Um, so we, we help them with the thinking about it. First of all, to say sustainability is a business philosophy, and as a business philosophy, it has to be embedded in the organizational culture and the way things are done. But people also primarily need to believe in it, buy into that mindset. It's only when you buy into the mindset that it can help shape organizational decisions. It can help provide alternative lens through which organizations uh, will operate. So we have worked with companies um, helping them translate this into practice, giving them frameworks that will help them think through the ideas from implementation um, to, uh, from idea to implementation. Um, so in thinking through what it could mean for lending, what it could mean for even the, from an environmental perspective, how they run the operations, and, and also how it can, how they can track their impact and, and measure how well they are doing in relation to the different stakeholder groups. And one of the ways we try to make it simple for organizations is to say that sustainability is about thinking of your impacts, and the impacts can be positive or negative. So the sustainability agenda is to enhance your positive impact and reduce or minimize your negative impact. And if you put it in that way, most businesses tend to understand it. And there is a question around, okay, who should be a responsibility for the negative impacts of, of our business? In some instances, some people might say, well, that's not our business. We are in business for profit. Is the, is the business of government or NGOs to sort out the, the, the negative impacts we create? But if you put it in the context of, say, emerging markets or developing economies where governments are weak, where the civil society is also weak, then it makes sense for organizations to pay attention to, to their negative impact because one, for example, poverty is not good for business, war is not good for business. So even if from a self-interest perspective, it pays to engage in some of these uh, activities. So we normally help companies think through what that would, could mean in their everyday business decisions by giving them tools and techniques to help them assess situations and incorporate sustainability thinking in their everyday business decision because if it is aware of life, it becomes part and parcel of what they do and how they think. So what are the, the top three things that you would, um, you know, kind of direct any company or any bank interested in this to look at? 
I don't understand the question. What, what, when you say two or three things to, to look at, is it in terms of good examples to look at or um, other ways of doing things? Well, let, let's talk about the good examples. So can you point to any good examples that um, people could, could understand? Oh, well, this is happening and they've done it. Like, who are those organizations? I'm not sure if you can mention them, but if you can, it would be great. Yes, I, I think it's a very interesting question because sometimes um, it's quite difficult to point to a particular company that is doing everything because what you find is that um, the, the idea about holistic CSR or holistic sustainable business strategy is quite rare. Most organizations tend to apply what you may call a partial approach to it. So you may find a company that is interested in water water sustainability. They do a lot about water, but on the human resources side or people side of their business, they're not as great. Um, so um, those companies that do it overall have quite few. Um, and sometimes also uh, you begin to probably look at companies um, uh, and, and the, the bigger the companies, even the more complex. A, a company like Unilever, despite the fact that the CEO is pushing a lot, and is, is a champion of sustainability. If you go into Unilever, you may not find everything as coherent as you want it. That is a human organization, and most organizations are. But I find the GABV uh, members quite interesting in the sense that they are organizations that have chosen to um, apply or think, even, even if they're not all at the same level, but at least to think about sustainability from a holistic perspective in terms of how it impacts on their different operations. And I find them quite interesting. So I normally use them as examples of people for people to look at in terms of what they're doing. They're not perfect, but their commitment and their drive for me is exemplary. Fantastic. Okay, so it looks like there are some pretty good examples out there. And I guess, I guess the, the thing that we should all remember is uh, no organization like people are, are, would be perfect, but probably um, the thing to do is to encourage each of us or each of us as business people or business owners or bankers is to take one step in the right direction towards being more socially, environmentally and economically aware. Exactly. I mean, I think that's important. So no, it's not about having sense and thinness. Okay. So, uh, and one way to describe sustainability is to, is to articulate it as a journey. And the first step towards that journey is the awareness. Sometimes people do things not because they are inherently bad or evil, but because they, they lack the knowledge, they lack the awareness. And sometimes also, there are a lot of things we do for granted. So sustainability is also about change. If you want to change the current way of thinking, there are a lot of things that we need to change. Say, for example, management education needs to change because you still have uh, business schools that only teach or promote the shareholder model. And you don't see the alternatives. Say, for example, one of the things I'm doing in the business school is to think of alternative business models. Say, think about the cooperatives, think about um, the benefit corporations that are not being promoted, and think about family businesses, think about um, your social enterprises. If we have these multiple options exposing um, students and, and current managers to alternative ways of organizing, probably they will start to think of other ways of doing things beyond the idea that business, the business of business is business. So um, awareness is the first step, uh, I would think. And then organizations are, or individuals are also willing to explore and experiment. 
So the whole idea about sustainability and its profitability is linked to profitability. It's not a very straightforward uh, argument. One needs to be creative and innovative to transform sustainability into profitability. If you decide just to follow sustainability as a, a religious doctrine, it may not necessarily lead to profit. Say, I can give you an example. If you think of a company that is interested in a green, green car, the, the manufacturer of a green car is a sustainable idea in terms of respecting environmental sustainability. But if there is no market there, if there are no consumers, then that business wouldn't survive. So it requires a bit of creativity to transcend some of the existing barriers. It could be in terms of how the product is uh, positioned. It could also be in terms of its affordability because what research has demonstrated is that consumers still want good quality at an affordable price. So some of these things need to come in place in order for that product or, or service to fly. So in that case, it requires a lot of creativity and innovation to transform sustainability agenda to, to profit. Kenneth, it's great actually. Thanks very much for that. So <clears throat> Kenneth, it's been wonderful having you on the show and I really like what you said. It made just it brings something very close to mind for me that this is, at the end of the day, all about the consumer, but the consumer is a guest on this planet. So if we don't look after the social, economic and environmental elements, there will be no consumer. So it, it has to, we have to broaden our mindset, become aware of the importance of, of this triple bottom line and start to look at alternatives and options out there. Uh, Kenneth, it's been wonderful having you on the show. Just very quickly, where can people go if they want to find out more information? Um, they can come to our website, which is sbiedinburgh.com, or they can Google Sustainable Business Initiative, uh, and um, you know, with, uh, it will come up as one of the, the top options. Or uh, they can also come to the University of Edinburgh or the University of Edinburgh Business School. Uh, we have other programs beyond what I do in sustainable business, which includes carbon finance, for those who are interested from the financial perspective, and also carbon management, which are the two new um, programs we offer and uh, the only ones I suspect are in Europe. Yeah. So we have other interesting things happening in the university beyond the uh, sustainable business initiative, which I lead. Great. Okay, Kenneth, thank you very much. So, folks, we're one minute from the end of the show. So I just wanted to, to point you to some interesting conversations that are going on already on social media under the show banner. So the hashtag on Twitter is Banking on Values. And it's interesting. We had um, a guest, Brendan Raymer from Cinnaboyne, on, and there's already some very interesting posts and photographs from uh, an Assiniboine member of staff. Now, this happened prior to the show today, but she's, she's actually just celebrating the fact that she works at a, a really cool place, best place, best team ever. So there's definitely something different there about the culture of values-based banks. Uh, Dr. Stanislav Edward is talking about the Oxford Summer School. Um, the GABV is talking about uh, crowdfunding for impact and include, thank you, include, holdings they're actually celebrating the second episode that we ran on feminine banking and I can see here that we have uh, someone celebrating the fact that he signed up for MIT's massive open online course on this very topic and the latest news on that is there are already 5,000 subscribers so folks if you want to get more information about the show you can go to voiceamerica.com and look up building banking on values you can follow me at catalyst warrior 
Um, and also, if you're going to post some information, it'd be great to share and use. Use the hashtag Banking on Values, and we'd be happy to highlight the best pieces next week. That's it. Thanks for joining the show. Thank you for listening to Building Banking on Values. Please join your host, Linda Ryan, again next Thursday at 3 p.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope to see you here next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.